0: It's obviously a, a cost to Bungie and others in the supply chain to monitor and conserve land. So how do you think about that trade-off between affordability uh, and sustainability?
1: So as we get to scale, we believe some of those investments will get paid back with the long term. You, you have to make choices. You have to, to, to pick the spots. And that is, again, by listening to the customers.
0: Hello and welcome to Tradeoffs, a podcast where we put CEOs under the ESG microscope to understand how they're making the important decisions around sustainability. I'm Ned Salter, Global Head of Investment Research at Fidelity International. and the voice you heard me talking to just now is Greg Heckman, Chief Executive of the Agricultural Commodities Powerhouse, Bungie. What makes for a sustainably responsible agribusiness? Bunge moves vast volumes of crops between farmers and consumers all over the world. The company faces a long list of environmental and social issues throughout its value chain. You can hear me ask Greg Heckman about those issues in my full interview with him now on the Fidelity Answers podcast feed. But in this episode, I'm going to be digging deeper into what he said with two of Fidelity's investment team, senior industry analyst James Richards and global head of fixed income research Gita Ball. Welcome. Hi, know Thank you. So James, you've covered Bungie for a few years now, and you're a resident expert in all things commodities and mining. Where does Bungie sit within the grand scheme of things?
2: Um, Bungie is a, a, a leading player in the global agriculture industry, uh, but it's also a leader in and, and a beneficiary of some really important and interesting tra- transition trends that, uh, that we're spending increasing amounts of time looking at.
0: Gita, you've also looked at Bungie for some time as part of our global food coverage here at Fidelity. How important is the business from a sustainability perspective?
3: Um, I think Bunge and its, its three main competitors, ADM, Cargill, and Louis-Dreyfus, are at the um, intersection of a number of important parts of our sustainability um, analysis. So they are working with farmers and um, agricultural producers dealing with all of the environmental and social issues that those um, companies and and players in the value chain are dealing with. They are working with um, food companies and those food companies and consumers. They're working with the fuel industry increasingly. um, And they are also transporting vast quantities of products across oceans, across land, and, and therefore have a significant environmental role on that side of things.
0: Early in our conversation, Mr. Heckman and I tackled the difficult issue of land use and conservation. Our view collectively is that without proper action on deforestation, we may fall short of our climate targets and you've positioned Bunge as a leader in combating deforestation uh, but it but it is true that a big part of your business includes working with soybean farmers um, and particularly this is an industry at the heart of deforestation issues in in Latin America so how do you characterize the trade-offs associated uh, when it comes to you know, the growth and feeding the world and, and deforestation
1: in particular? I guess part of, the, part of the trade-off maybe is how you spend your time and how you spend your resources because it is about engaging with the entire value chain. We have to engage with the farmer to provide the tools in the value chain so that we can track not only with our direct Uh, purchases, but with our indirect purchases. Then if you go all the way to the consumer, it's working with the consumer to ensure that they understand what is available and that we can provide them certified deforestation-free soy, but that that has a cost. And that that cost is so that we can get that value back to the producer so that they can make those changes. We also have to engage with industry groups. Uh, We have to engage with the regulatory bodies, because it's important that we do have regulation that that is clear and that is consistent so that ourselves and other players in the value chain can make investments with long term capital that makes the changes that help drive sustainability for the long term and the other thing i often say is end at scale because the key to really making a difference is being able to drive this change at scale
0: so a trade off to characterize it is effectively how you spend your time. It's not just growth, but it's growing responsibly. You know, is it feasible for us at scale to feed the world without further deforestation?
1: Yeah, it it is, but it it will take uh, all of us working together. Um, There needs to be uh, a real push on the education so that we all have the same information at the same time and whether that's about converting uh, lands that are already available into crop, if it's about bringing the technology, and that's whether that's in the seed side or the nutrient side to improve yields uh, on on that land, um, whether it's about working with the, the financial organizations to drive the, the incentives of maybe lower cost financing. So there's, there's no one lever, but it really does start with education, and that we all have that, that same view of the facts. James, Mr. Heckman really lays
0: bare the sheer scale of the challenge, doesn't he?
2: It's a mind-blowingly difficult thing to do. I mean, you're, you're trying to feed the world that is growing. You're trying to um, ensure that you're doing so in a, in a way that doesn't see further deforestation. And then even more difficult, you're tracking that down not only through your direct purchases from farmers, but also, you know, your indirect purchases through through, through traders. Um, you're then trying to carbon score the product you you have, and 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 track that as well. And and at the end of the day, you've got to get somebody to pay for the whole thing. Can you tell us a little
0: bit about the certification process and how complex that would be for a company like Bungie?
2: They use a variety of tools to get comfort on on, on, on the sort of deforestation-free nature of, of, of the product. Um, there is a there's an official database in Brazil um, which they, which they leverage. Uh, there are third-party um, satellite providers again that they leverage their work as well. And you know we have received as, as an investment management organisation along with multiple other players in our space you know, satellite reports, which have, which have suggested that, that, that Bungie and, and other people in the industry had deforestation material in, in, in their supply chains. And we followed up and we've had really good conversations with them about what tests they've done and why they think the information that we've seen is inaccurate. And so, you know, this is an area that we have engaged with them on.
0: You mentioned certification, carbon scoring, and the complexity associated with that. But you also mentioned that you know a lot of people need to be influenced along the journey. Who are the key players that need to be influenced here to achieve the goal of deforestation-free agribusiness?
2: If I if I was to pull out two, um, obviously the consumer and 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 you know we're talking largely staples companies, um, also the energy um, complex to to a degree are going to need to pay for this, um, but you know, when I look at the, the whole business of decarbonizing the commodity space, I think the role of governments is is absolutely crucial. And and it's my, my particular hobby horse is I don't think we can get where we need to get without a global carbon price and charging for carbon uh, in a way that makes this whole process more transparent and, and provides further incentives. Well, Gita, James
0: did mention that the key part of the value chain here is the consumer. Um, what are the consumer staples companies doing when it comes to this complex matrix? Uh, what kinds of pressure are they applying to companies like Bunge?
3: Look, consumer staples companies have been some of the most engaged on the issue of sustainability of all the sectors that we cover. Um, they are, for example, increasingly focused on things like traceability, but you will see them all making net zero pledges. You'll see them looking at their value chains and saying, how are we treating our employees? Um, and, and therefore not just focused on environment, but, but also on the social side of things. But I think that, that we have to recognize that companies are operating in markets around the world and their end consumers have very different interests and sustainability issues, as well as very different abilities to pay for different sustainable labels and and so forth. Um, And I also think there is a trade-off for consumer, and I'm sure we'll talk about this more later, where there is a question about how many different sustainability line items can they focus on at one time. And so is it net zero? Is it deforestation? Is it um, labor relations in the supply chain? Can they be certified for every single one of those things and, 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 and find a way to focus on all of them at the same time? I think that's more challenging for the end consumer.
0: How would you characterize the difference in consumer tastes and preferences between emerging markets and developed markets?
3: Within the developed markets, Focus on sustainability is clearly um, much more prevalent in a place like Europe than it is even elsewhere in the developed markets. So you get um, differences in preferences within developed markets, but you also get preference differences um, in the emerging markets versus the developed markets in that, for example, most of the world has not consumed very much meat. Protein consumption, animal protein consumption tends to increase alongside um, per capita GDP. And so as uh, countries move up the development spectrum, they tend to consume more meat, albeit off of a, a low base. I believe we hit peak animal protein consumption in much of the developed world somewhere around 2015, and we've now seen declining per capita consumption Whereas in the emerging markets, that, that growth continues to increase at a very, very rapid pace. And therefore, that, that trend will continue for some time.
0: Let's hear a bit more about Bungie, in particular, Greg Heckman as chief executive and the job he faced when he took over as CEO in 2019 with a clear mandate to turn
1: the company around. We had the opportunity to, to act as a global company where we had really been operating more as regions. And that, the operating model change is what allowed us to really look at problems that we, and only we can solve sometimes, uh, because we have a major uh, uh, global footprint. We're in all the key origins of uh, where the production is and we're in those key areas of destination. He also
0: goes on to talk about the importance of financial discipline and getting that in check. And then you add sustainability to the agenda. So James, you know, how did he do all that, and were there any trade-offs you think that he had to make in this transition while he turned the company around?
2: This wasn't a massive transformational event. You know, he'd already begun to to ratchet down capex, and he he was very controlled about about capital allocation in in the early years. He um, exited places where he thought there were better owners of those businesses, and you know, execution while he's been CEO has been absolutely fantastic. Although it, it's only fair to point out that he, you know, he, he came in near the trough of the cycle, and we're now well above mid-cycle. And so he's he's had a tailwind to operate with, but has I mean, he's done an exceptional job. So
0: in this turnaround, you've talked about financial and operational risk management and changes to capital allocation process, generally making the company more efficient. Where does sustainability and ESG rank in those priorities of the things that he's done since taking over the company
2: well i mean he's keen to point out that the deforestation pledges you know predated him there it's more it's more an evolution and he's been able to continue that focus and and sharpen it to the extent that you know they they did what last year uh, science-based targets which you know is a big step forward and you know five ten years ago the idea of, of asking consumers to pay for deforestation 3 was, was still, I guess, more of a difficult ask. And so, particularly on the, on the sustainability side, I think it's more a progression of, of, what, of what he inherited. Um, but he's managed not to lose focus on that when there were many, many competing priorities. So we'll come back to
0: science-based targets a little bit later in our conversation. Um, But as you mentioned, the company does have a 2025 deforestation-free pledge. I asked him about the cost of these kinds of initiatives. You've talked about monitoring conservation initiatives, ensuring supply chains are deforestation-free. This doesn't come cheap, I wouldn't expect. It's obviously a, a cost to Bungie and others in the supply chain to monitor and conserve land. So, how do you think about that trade off between affordability uh, and sustainability?
1: Well, as the, the largest global oil seed processor and one of the, the, the largest agricultural commodity merchants globally, we feel it's our responsibility. So, we also feel that uh, long term, it, it's the right thing. Um, So we're making those investments. So as we get to scale, we believe some of those investments will get paid back with the long term by growing our business, by helping our most important customers at both ends of the supply chain grow their business. uh, And by being able to continue to drive that education and knowledge and transparency so we all have the same information at the same time.
0: But if you bore all those costs by yourselves, one could argue that you know profit levels would be low, lower. Therefore, reinvestment rates would be lower. Your ability to innovate would be lower. Who's sharing in this burden with you?
1: You you have to make choices. You have to 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 pick the spots, and that is again by listening to the customers. Uh, what's important to them? As uh, we in the last two and a half years have really seen the conversation switch, where it's customers in not only the food, but in the feed and in the the fuel segment, all want lower carbon intensity products. Um, And they're hearing it from their customers and their consumers and their investors. And they know they're going to have to pay for for that along the way. So it is a collaborative effort uh, on some of these investments and looking for where we can gain some traction and start to build some scale to make a shorter term payback. But yeah, you, you have to be very disciplined about the investment.
0: So at some point, um, as customers' demands change, clients are going to be required or, you know, theoretically should be willing to pay higher prices for this element of sustainability?
1: Absolutely. They'll pay more for what's important to them. They'll pay more for for what they want. And the consumer is sending a a strong signal uh, that they want more sustainable products. Um, And not only the ones they consume... The ones they use, they want it to be delivered with more sustainable fuel and the delivery trucks. And this is this is a real trickle down. And what's interesting now is you not only have the consumers sending that economic signal, but you have governments that are doing some things with regulation to help support the build out of these industries uh, on the front end. And when you can get, you know, regulation and the consumers moving together, that's when you start to really see the change. And, and, and and we feel that we're really starting to see that wave and see it gain momentum.
0: Gita, there's a lot of talk about customers. So I'm keen to know will customers in the in this case, food companies, be willing to pay more for sustainable products like the ones that Mr. Heckman is talking about. So-
3: A lot of of food companies themselves have their own targets, their own pledges that they've made with respect to climate, with respect to deforestation, with respect to how they treat their employees all throughout their value chain. And therefore, I think it is a focus and they recognize there's going to be a cost to that. I think in terms of their end customers and what will they pay a premium for, I I would split it into two, two broad buckets. There are things that the customers now ultimately expect of their um, food companies and the way that they are provided with with different products. And I would think about something like sustainable palm oil. It's not a premium product. It is a requirement now from the consumer that your palm oil is sourced sustainably. And and we've seen it in in all sorts of Christmas advertising that takes place here in the UK every year. Um, People are focused on this topic. When it comes to other types of products, I think there are customers who are more willing to pay a premium to get specifically what they want. And I would think um, organic, non-GMO kind of produce versus the the kind of more standard one. If you go into a supermarket, you're still seeing organic alongside non-organic products. And, and one of those is, is, is priced at a premium and there are customers willing to pay that premium. And then there are customers who are saying, particularly in, in this kind of cost environment, that's not something I can afford to do. So I think there are certain issues that will be a requirement for all um, food companies, but there will be others where there will be a tiering of price points um, depending on what the customer preferences are.
0: So given the current macroeconomic backdrop, are you suggesting that we might take a step back in terms of what customers are
3: willing to pay for? I, I think we, we have to recognize that we are going to take a step back in terms of what some customers are able to pay for, um, particularly in the developing world right now, but also here in, in the Western world. People are really struggling with um, energy poverty and other issues. Um, at this stage, there there probably will be those who just can't afford to pay a premium for certain products. With that said, are our highest earners the most likely to buy the organic produce at the minute? Of course they are. Are they as likely to be hit by, by rising energy costs and a rising cost of living? Probably not.
2: There, there's, there's one point making, or worth making here is that the actual ag is only about 10% of the, um, the value of the product you buy off the shelf. And so what you're talking about is a relatively small uplift on a relatively small part of what you actually buy off the shelf. Um, and so and so this this is a case where the actual cost to the consumer, you know, when we're all worried about our gas bills and the inflation you're seeing there, the actual inflation you're seeing from decarbonization in the ag chain is, I think, quite a small number. Mr. Heckman in his comments said that when it comes to the choices you have to make, one must
0: be disciplined about the investment. Um, so discipline or not, these are costly measures. What are the repercussions? What do you expect will happen?
2: As I look across my space, decarbonisation, you know, is going to require new technologies and innovation in, in, in a number of ways, and and in and in a huge number of, of these places, the decarbonized alternative is going to cost more than the um, than the existing technology. It's not really an economic choice. It's it's something we need to do, and so at the end of the day, somebody is going to have to pay for that. Um, in the near term, you know, we are seeing a lot of that being taken by in terms of government subsidies. Uh, in the long term, the consumer is going to have to pay.
0: Gita, how are the consumer companies themselves balancing the trade-off between cost and sustainability?
3: I think um, the consumer companies are a varied group of companies with a, a consequently varied set of responses. Ultimately, if you're talking about... Um, Branded consumer companies with high degrees of market share um, and high margins, they have more ability to, to manage the costs associated with this transition, and they tend to have um, greater levels of environmental commitments. If you're talking about unbranded, more local players, obviously their ability to take those cost increases um, is, is is more meaningfully lower. And therefore, um, you may get them focusing on just a handful of areas that they are especially concerned about. And the, the broader global supply chain issues may be um, of less focus for them.
0: Can you think of any specific examples of companies that have made those innovations where required and spent that additional money
3: so, I think there's a lot of talk about how inflation is negative for consumers, for economics and 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 for the like. And and that's definitely a challenge for for markets. But I would also say for for some food companies, for some food retailers, inflation can ultimately be a positive contributor to their earnings over the long term. And that is simply because when customers are expecting to see higher prices, they may also be willing to pay for innovations that they wouldn't have been able to pay when they were expecting prices to be as low as possible. And and so I I remember talking to a consumer company many, many years ago um, about an innovation in their packaging. And they said, look, until we hit this period of inflation, we had this great innovation, but nobody was going to be willing to pay for it. The second we hit a moment of inflation where people were expecting to pay more for their product, we could actually put a better quality packaging available to our consumers, and it turned out that they were willing to pay more for that. And then the entire rest of the value chain followed, and everyone got a higher price. The consumer got a better product. Um, Everybody was happier for it, but you needed that inflation to be the catalyst.
0: She was talking about zipper bags on frozen peas. <laughs> talking of innovation and investment in the future, I asked Mr. Heckman what he thought the future might look like. What are some of the next generation things that we should be looking for capital deployment towards?
1: The biggest changes we're seeing are on the re- renewable feedstocks for the, the biofuels industry and renewable diesel specifically. And we think aviation, sustainable aviation fuel will be next. Uh, and oil seeds uh, are a big supplier. That oil uh, is going to be a big part of the liquid fuels transition that the energy industry is trying to make to lower their carbon footprint. So we've got a, a real role to play. And then on the plant-based uh, foods front, we, uh, we're, we're very excited about that. And we think we'll continue to see growth in the plant-based food ingredients. Uh, We are a big supplier of the protein as well as the lipids in those products. In many of the meat alternative products, uh, we supply up to 95% of the ingredients. Uh, And that's a trend that's in place and even some of the alternative dairy products that are being developed. he's bullish on a few things here,
0: uh, plant-based foods, meat and dairy alternatives. One could argue we're talking now about trade-offs made at our dining room or kitchen tables, and I know how much I love a good burger. Um, how big is this trend?
3: So first of all, there is no denying that meat and dairy alternatives are an enormous trend, that customers are Um, ultimately demanding more and more of these products. We're seeing lab-grown meats. We're seeing every variety of uh, vegetable-derived milk that you can imagine on our grocery shelves. Um, It's it's a a clear-growing segment. With that said, I think the trade-off that the customer is making at their dinner table is often a very complex one and sometimes one that they don't know that they're making. So, for example, if we think that both for a diet point of view and for a carbon footprint point of view, it is better to consume a meat alternative, um, we think we're making the right choice from a, a climate perspective. But we may not recognize that the same deforestation that might be um, an issue in the cattle industry is also an issue in um, growing of soy And as a consequence, that our meat alternative, while it has a lower carbon footprint, may not be as good from a biodiversity point of view as we were hoping. Similarly, as we move to more um, dairy alternatives, Um, we are developing monocultures uh, around um, some of our agricultural commodities, something like almonds, where our bee populations, which I think all of us have been focused on for a few years right now, trying to to get those bee populations back up and get our pollinators back up, they're kind of facing much less diversity in the crops that they were historically pollinating, and that's leading to negative consequences. So I, I guess the point I'm making is that even for the end consumer, there aren't easy choices here. And sometimes by making the right choice in one dimension, they're facing a tougher choice in another dimension that that they may or may not be aware of.
0: Can consumers be certain that the well-to-wheel carbon emissions of a soy or plant-based burger are lower than that of a meat-based burger?
3: I think they can be. They can definitely be certain that it's, it's lower in terms of the, um, the carbon emissions. However, I don't know if they can be certain about all of the other uh, environmental consequences of that decision.
0: Okay, so it's a multidimensional problem. Uh, the other growth area that he mentions uh, was renewable diesel. So James, how big is that market and what are the pros and cons or the trade-offs associated with biofuels?
2: It's a huge and developing market in that you're seeing a a significant rollout um, of of renewable diesel capacity in the US. And ideally, you'd service that industry by the lowest carbon feedstocks, which are used cooking oil and animal fats. But there's just not going to be enough of of, of these crucial ingredients. And so you are going to need vegetable oils and and soil in particular um, to, to service that industry. What is the the trade off there? Is that you know you're you're putting in the end a lot of foodstuffs into the the, the fuel industry. The the number is already gigantic, and and that demand growth is is not going to let up. Uh, this this was an issue that came up at the G7 last year, whether mandates should be relaxed. You know, given some of the the, the pressures that we were seeing, that didn't eventually happen. Um, but it, it is a theme that is beginning to come up from time to time.
0: Is there a trade-off between food security
2: and the provisioning or the delivery of biofuels? A portion of those foodstuffs is not is not of a quality that, that humans can consume it. But yes, I mean, at the margin, there is definitely a tension there. James,
0: as you mentioned, food security was a hot topic at the recent G7 meeting. And I asked Mr. Heckman about whether or not there was a tension for bungie when it came to deciding how these crops were used. There's a lot of commentary in the moment about food security. And and I guess the question is, is there a trade-off between food versus fuel in a world of scarce resources? And I read that 50% of U.S. corn goes into fuel. Um, how do you think about that potential trade-off between food versus fuel?
1: Yeah, we we don't see it as a trade-off. We see the ability to serve both our food customers uh, as well as the fuel customers. We've continued to work uh, with our food customers to get them the supplies they need. Uh, As markets adjust, we also work with them where they're reformulating at times to change oils. We work with them as they're innovating new products. and the uh, and, and the market works.
0: Food prices have become a big topic, you know. Obviously, with the CPI and inflation running higher, H- how do you consider this? Do you know? Do you think that food security is a national security issue? And how have you interacted with your stakeholders on that topic?
1: You know, it's uh, our job to ensure that we help solve any uh, concerns around getting food from where it's produced to where it's needed. So, food security is. It's core to to who we are. Um, We can solve these problems. Today, it has been an issue of price, not availability. And that's where we do engage with uh, governments to ensure that people don't react and actually put regulation in place that can be uh, the unintended consequences of actually making the problem worse uh, than helping solve the problem. And so again, it's about that education and that engagement to ensure, to to let the markets work so that we can solve these problems.
0: This comment, food security is an issue of price, not availability, I think is super interesting. And so coming back to this topic, James, practically speaking, do we have the land and the crops to feed the world and make biofuels?
2: I mean, that's a proper crystal ball item, um, but... I, I think I think what is what is clear is that we are gonna need to make maximum use of the of the technology we have and that's you know fertilizers, seeds, uh crop protection. We're gonna have to innovate. Overlaid on that is you know some of the, the, the changing dietary trends. Can we do it? Probably. <laughs> um can I can I sit here and say, yes, I can see a path to which you know this is this is gonna happen. You know, that, that's that's a stretch. Geeta, your view?
3: I think if you put the fuel question to the side, which I think adds a new dimension to, to this discussion compared to just 10 years ago, I don't think it matters whether it's price or availability because at this point in time, we clearly do not have sufficient food in the right places at the right price for all of the people of the world. And... We know we have problems with malnutrition in many parts of the world. We know we have problems with food waste and obesity in many parts of the world. And that's not just in developed markets. That that can split the, the developed-developing market divide. And so ultimately, I think we're going to need better answers on how do we provide food to those who need it before we even get to the fuel question, which will complicate things even more.
0: Finally, I want to look a little bit closer at Bungie's climate-related goals. The company, uh, as you mentioned, James, had signed up to Science-Based Targets, which is an internationally recognized climate initiative for businesses, but it it doesn't yet have a net zero target. So I asked Mr. Heckman about his view on net zero pledges, whether he thought they were relevant and at what cost.
1: One of the things that we've been very careful about here at Bungie is ensuring that we deliver on what we say we're going to do. And the thing we like about science-based targets is you know, there is a, an organization, there is a methodology. There really is no equivalent to that for people making net zero pledges. So over time, we'll watch that develop. We have the ability to continue to move our targets and our pledges as we see uh, fit over time. Uh, but right now, we're really focused on on delivering against our science based targets.
0: James, what's your response to to Mr. Heckman's
2: position on that? I've got enormous sympathy for it. Um, I I fully get that it's very difficult for CEOs to sign off on things where they cannot see how to get to the end goal um, and where there's no existing methodology. And I come across it. Like virtually every day in in, in in my in my day job, people saying you know, me pushing for for more aggression um, and more ambition, and people going, but we can't commit to this because we can't see exactly how we're going to get there. I, I think our industry is going to require people to sign up to net zero as a statement of ambition. It's then how you get there is 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 you know in some cases quite a challenging um, process.
0: Geeta, what's your do you have a comment on the relevance of a net zero target for a company like Bungie?
3: Look, I I, I agree wholeheartedly with what what James said. Um, I think we've seen a proliferation of net zero uh, targets from companies, from governments, from all sorts of of entities around the world, and the robustness of the plans to achieve those targets is often lacking. I would agree with James. This is an important statement of ambition, but we need more robust methodology to, to to back that up.
0: So, James, what would need to happen in order for Bungie to sign
2: up to a net zero pledge? He, he said he said it there. Is, is there needs to be a a measurable path um, by which you can get to net zero? Um, you know, with with clear component parts, and probably with the appropriate level of, of government regulation and support. We know the achievement of a
0: 1.5 degree scenario can, can, can we're sort of, we can calculate that we're in possession of two thirds of the technology to be able to deliver that and that one third remains sort of questionable at this moment in time. So isn't having an ambition
2: a great way to force that innovation in direct capital deployment? I 100% think so um, and actually one of the things which I find most refreshing about Bungi versus a lot of the other companies that, that I, I deal with is that you know in many areas of the commodity space scope 3 is the biggest issue and, and over 95% of Bungi's um, emissions are, are scope 3 as opposed to scope 1 and scope 2 and it's common to see companies not giving scope 3 targets um, because they're not fully controllable Um, But given the relative scale, you know, I am trying to push companies to get more active on Scope 3, because Scope 3 is a hugely more material issue to solve
0: for the world. Climate-oriented goals are forcing industry leaders to assess not just their emissions, but the emissions of all players along the value chain. So Scope 3 emissions, as you just described, James. For Bungie, as you mentioned, a huge part of that um, are the farmers and their practices.
1: The scope three is, of course, a, a big part of what we're trying to solve with our deforestation-free uh, pledge. Um, it is also uh, by working through a number of uh, different seed providers and technology development. One of the investments that we've made, and we're working with Chevron and Bayer, is in cover cress. Uh, we're developing a, a novel seed that would be a cover crop. It would be a, an extra crop that we planted in the off-season by the farmer. It would have a very low carbon intensity and it would provide an oil seed and a, a meal that can go into the market, which will extra supply. So I think that's a case of the investment in innovation that the market is now sending the signals uh, for the industry to make.
0: James, what is cover CoverCress and how does it help with emissions?
2: Um, it sequesters carbon and prevents organic soil carbon loss. Uh, it, it's a crop that um, you don't sell, you do it for the, for the maintenance of the, of, the, of the soil's value and its characteristics. And, you know, by, by deploying this technology, you are, you're reducing the, the carbon content of, of your end corn and your soy.
0: So, you know, within your coverage universe and the companies that you're responsible for investing in, does this approach to scope three seem usual or unusual?
2: They have more control over their scope three emissions than a lot of the companies I look at and, and, and more ability to influence. And and they're certainly, you know, the way that they are engaging with their supply chain um, in order to, to, to score and to, to reduce the carbon content of the end product is something that I think a lot of companies could learn from. Geeta, that sounds impressive. Do you agree?
3: I I, I totally agree. I think, look, of, of all the... 4,000-plus companies that we look at as an investment analyst team um, on on sustainability, it it is a small minority that have scope three uh, targets, plans, um, and so forth. And so I think particularly in an industry that is higher in its emissions, it's, it's really good to see companies leading the way in saying that our real impact is in those Scope 3 emissions, and that's where we're going to focus our energies.
0: The conclusions I draw when hearing about a company like Bungie is the extent to which these businesses have such a critical impact when it comes to building a more sustainable future. Bungie exerts influence across a huge and sprawling value chain, Its actions will affect the people it works with, its end consumers, and, of course, the ecosystems and communities along the way. I want to thank my guests today, Gita Ball and James Richards, and thank you to Greg Heckman for his time. You can hear my interview with him on Fidelity Answers, plus more material at your local Fidelity website or at fidelityinternational.com. Check for links in the show notes. The producer is Seb Morton-Clark, with technical support from Callum Blitz and Adam Sheldrake. The editor is Richard Edgar. From all of us at Fidelity, goodbye. This podcast is for investment professionals only and should not be relied upon by private investors. This podcast is provided for informational purposes only and is intended only for the person or entities to which it is sent. It must not be reproduced or circulated to any other party without the prior permission of Fidelity. The value of investments can go down as
3: well as up, so you may get back less than you invest. For other important legal notices, please visit your local Fidelity website.